Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Just welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest. And a few weeks ago, we had our congregational retreat. Yeah, I I really loved our retreat this year. And we went in with this theme called Recharged. Okay, Recharged. And the idea was we felt that many people going into the period of the retreat We're in a place where we really needed a touch from God, a refreshing. Some of us have been in church a long time. How many of you have been in church for the majority of your earthly life? Would you raise your hand? Wow, it's a lot of us. Yeah. So if you've grown up in the church, you've been going um, almost like clockwork for the majority of your life. This is so automatic. After a while, anything you repeat enough can start to lose its impact and its meaning. And I think we went into the retreat knowing that's where many of us were and wanting God to touch us with a fresh encounter. And for many people, God did that at the retreat. I was especially thankful that in spite of many mishaps and challenges, um, a lot of mishaps and challenges, I really feel like God moved among us, and I feel like our church stepped up and really rallied together. Am I getting feedback because of this, guys? Should I do something? Maybe move up? I don't know what to do. Up or back? It's okay? All right. I especially appreciated Pastor Seth's messages. And I liked how he framed being spiritually recharged in terms of four things that God has provided for us so that we can be spiritually renewed. Pardon me for just a minute. One of the things that's come with aging for me is my throat has lots of new neighbors. I'm sorry. Wow. I don't think someone wants me to say this message. Let me continue. Four things that he outlined that God has given us to recharge spiritually are prayer, worship, our mission, and our community. And I think he really did a great job of laying a foundation with those. And what I'm going to do for the next four weeks, not because he did a poor job and I feel like I have to fix it, but because too often when God moves and there's a stirring, a conviction, um, it's just for a moment, and then we move on, life takes over, and those convictions and blessings can often fall off the table. And so my aim is not to somehow redo or repair anything he did or didn't do. It is to build on that foundation and to keep alive some of the things God began doing in our lives at the retreat. So I'm going to revisit those four topics, those four means that God gave us to continue growing and recharging spiritually. 
And in my own head, I'm calling the, the working title of this series is Retreat Reprise, because I just, from, for me, it's just revisiting what God began to do in my own heart. <clears throat> At the retreat, Pastor Seth preached on prayer out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, which was our theme passage for the whole retreat. And he taught us that one of the great values of a prayer life is that it grounds us and it grows us in the experience of God's love for us. That one of the most important things that happens when we pray is this word, this phrase called the love of God starts to feel like something for us. They're not just words anymore, that in that place of prayer, so often God meets human beings in such a special, powerful way, it stirs something in us. We're no longer thinking about him, we're actually experiencing him in some way. Now, that's not been the experience for every person who's grown up in the church, but for a great many of you, you have had that experience. In fact, for some of you, that experience of God's reality and presence was so profound, it is the only echo anchoring you to the faith today. I I have talked to so many people over the course of my ministry from that's true. I cannot unsee what I have seen. I haven't seen him in a while, but that doesn't mean I can pretend that I never saw him. God's presence and his powerful sense of love for us can be so real in our prayer life that it anchors us for a lifetime. And so I really appreciated the way he framed his message. This morning, I'm going to give a little bit more of a practical guide for a prayer life that keeps us recharged. Because if you're anything like me, your experience with prayer has been mixed. Can you agree? I've had, my prayer life is kind of all over the place. There are times when I pray and I feel like, I understand what Paul meant when he wrote, I was transported. I was transported to another realm. There are times when in prayer, I feel so close to God and so alive in my faith. And there are other times when I know I need to pray for so many things and I'm crying out and I just feel nothing in my heart. Just this huge, vacuous numbness, and I'm struggling just to stay awake or remember what I wanted to say to him. Am, am I the only one? Anybody else? You, you could just say, uh-huh. That's right, because for, for all of us, our experience of prayer is probably really mixed. It, it, it goes across a huge spectrum of experience. And so I want to give you some practical guidance this morning that I have always found helpful for anchoring me in my prayer life, which I have to say is not the greatest strength of my Christian life, is prayer. I want so much to grow in prayer. I know I need to grow in prayer. It has been one of the most challenging things for me to consistently grow in, and I'm confessing that to you in the hopes not that you will judge me and seek to oust me and replace me with someone else, but because I want you to identify with me the fact that prayer is not that easy a thing. You can say it is and act like it is, and for some of you it really is, but for a lot of us, it's a challenge. I want to use an acronym that is probably super familiar to most of you, and though at times I'm like, I don't want some dumb acronym to guide my prayer life, I still go back to it because I'm like, I don't know a better way to pray than this. This has been such a helpful, complete overview of prayer. How many of you know the ACTS acronym? So I hope many of you 
um, have learned this before. If not, you're in for a treat because this is going to help you. I learned this when I was 15 years old, and I have never forgotten it. It's one of the few acronyms that I've never, ever forgotten. The A stands for adoration. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to tell you what each word of the acronym is, and then I want to give it to you in plain English, because that's what the technical term is. This is what we're actually saying to God. Adoration is, I love you. C is confession, and confession is, I'm sorry. T is thanksgiving, duh, it's thank you. And supplication, that's such an old-timey word. This is a fancy way of saying, please. Now, would you, when you look at that, would you agree with me that those are four things that we, we need to learn to say honestly and freely and often in every relationship in our lives? That when you have a relationship in your life, that you may feel these things, but you never say them to the other person. They know I'm sorry, whatever, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. I guarantee you that if we don't learn to say these things with a heartfelt attitude in every relationship, a barrier will be erected between us and that person. These are words that are not just value-added. They are the main course of the meal. Without them, I don't believe a meaningful relationship is possible at all. And so I think we need to learn that our relationship with God is, in fact, actually a relationship with a real being, a real person, and he expects to hear these words from us as well. But here's the other element of this acronym, and, and that is that too often... All the focus is on what we say to God. And that's what I've written here. Th- these are the words we say to God in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But remember that prayer is a two-way conversation, as every real relationship should have. In some relationships, the frustration is it's not a two-way conversation. It's always one person talking at the other person. And that's why the relationship starts to shrivel. It's like, I don't want to be around you because it's not really talking with. It's always listening to. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? Some of us have that, re- that relationship with our parents. I didn't want to talk with them because I didn't do any other talking. Every little word I said launched another tirade or another lecture, and after a while, I realized this person doesn't want to converse. They want to lecture. They want to indict. They want to accuse. They want to fix. In our relationship with God, it's the same way, that for prayer to be rich, it cannot just be a, an index card full of bullet points of things I'm going to say to God, but it's in mindfulness that when we say stuff to God, he says stuff back. And the recharging of prayer begins with the unburdening of saying these things that we need to say in any relationship. But the real recharging in prayer comes when he speaks back and we hear what he's saying to us. I found very often that when I turn prayer into just a list of stuff, I'm shouting at God. I feel a little bit unburdened, but I don't feel really free. I don't feel a lot of peace. It's when I shut up for a while and listen and he begins to touch my heart. That's when the recharging happens, is the words God speaks to me bring life. My own words tell the truth to him. They unburden me, but his words bring life to us. Amen? So I want to just give you this. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you what we say to God, and then I'm going to tell you what God says back to us, I believe. 
it's not like with the same authority as the Ten Commandments. God might say other stuff back, but I, here's the thing. You don't always hear his voice. In fact, some of us almost never hear his voice, and so we feel like maybe God never talks to us at all. He does talk, and I know for a fact that these are the words he is saying to us in his spirit because he's already said those things in Scripture, in his written word, and it reveals to us every time our heart says this to God, this is his posture towards us. I don't have to hear it audibly. I know in faith because he's already revealed it in Scripture that when God encounters a human heart that shouts these words, the heart of God shouts back this sentiment. He's said it in Scripture and he never changes. This is always his response to this cry of the human heart. And so even if you can't hear his voice, you can read his response to you in Scripture and in faith just know that in heaven God has heard you and this is his heart and his posture and his attitude towards you and me. Every once in a while, though, when we're deep in prayer and we have shed all distraction and God wants to have a special encounter with us. Every once in a while in that kind of prayer, there is such a real sense of his presence that it feels like, and this is what I think most people mean when they said God told me. I don't want to debate whether any human being could hear the audible voice of God and just, well, how do you know that wasn't just your subconscious talking at you? Stop it. I know that many of us have had such a powerful sense of God. You can't empirically prove to anyone it was the voice of God, but in your spirit you knew God was stirring these words in you, these convictions in you that felt like communication from another being and not from the wells of your own subconscious. It felt not like you were saying something to you, but someone else was saying something to you. And I believe that's what we mean as Christians when we say, I heard the voice of God. And every once in a while, and it's not every day, you will have such an experience of God that it will feel like you did hear him say something back to you. And when he says these things back to you in prayer, I really believe that the touch on your life and on my life is going to be profound and long-lasting. That's enough preamble. I want to dive right into it. As we go, if you just um, could remember to pray for my voice. I think something crawled down there while I was sleeping because it feels like it's alive. Adoration is saying I love you. I'm going to be 52 in a couple months. And in all those years, I finally managed to learn something. I learned a lot of things along the way, but it's funny how the things you think you know, you turn 50 and go, oh, oh. It's so true. You know, it's one thing to love someone. It's a whole other thing to tell them that you love them. I was doing some research on the Internet, and I was astounded at how many people have never heard their parents say, I love you. I mean, that same parent may have provided them a wonderful life and given them everything, pushed them to success, Gave them every advantage. And yet what they longed for in all those years was just these simple words. I love you. I adore you. I'm so proud of you. I'm glad you're my kid. You're a gift to me. I can't believe I get to be your mom or your dad. Those words, we always feel them. We think, well, duh, because I cook for you. I drive you. I provide for you. I give you. Yes, I know you do all those things. 
But that heart is yearning to hear the words spoken with honesty, eye to eye, hand to hand, heart to heart. That's what we all long for. It's not enough to know we've been loved. We need to hear the words spoken to us. And when we speak the words, I love you, it's more than communication of information. It's not just a transaction. And that's the reason so many really practical people, you know, like the, you know, the robotic people who are totally logical, beep, 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 boop, 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 you know, da, da, uh, you already know that I love you. I do not need to repeat the communication. You know, like people like that. Why do I need to keep saying it? Don't you already know? Yes. Well, you already heard the song once. Why do you got to hear it again? It's my favorite song. Well, good. That means you know it. Stop listening. Do you listen to a song twice because you're trying to learn it or because hearing it just delights your heart. Think about that. I'm not, learn- I'm not listening to a song 50 times because I'm trying to gain information. I'm listening to it because hearing it touches me. And the reason that we speak the words I love you is because when we speak those words, something more than information passes between us and that person. It's the verbal equivalent of a reassuring touch or a warm embrace. It's not just saying, you know the facts. It's saying to them, don't you ever forget we're anchored to each other. You will always be accepted by me. I've got you. You matter to me. Wherever you go, home is here with me. Don't worry about anything. It's the verbal equivalent of that touch that communicates more than words can. And when we speak it, The words, I love you, are good both for the one speaking and the one hearing. And, you know, it's true you can say the words very insincerely and with emptiness of heart. But when you speak the words, I love you, with sincerity, those words powerfully bond two beings together. When's the last time you just simply told God, I love you? See, here's the thing. You know, growing up in the 80s, all I heard was love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God. The 80s were an interesting period for the faith. It was a period of high doctrine, high command, high obedience Christianity. And I don't don't think that's wrong. I, I think if there is a God, obedience and belief, right belief, are important. We're not sitting here making up everything for ourselves and doing what seems right in our own eyes. All those things are mad. But you know what? We, we, all I heard growing up was, love God, love God, love God. And rightly so, it's the greatest commandment. But then something shifted as I got older in the faith. All I started to hear was, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. It's like we can't ever hold things in tension. We've got to always go far to one side or far to the other. So I grew up hearing consistently this obligation laid on my heart. You love God with all your heart. But then for the last 15 years, I feel like all I've heard is God loves you with all his heart. God loves you with all his heart. And it's like, can we love each other? Do I have to sit and go, he hasn't loved me a lot lately. You know, like, we don't have to do that. Yes, there are times when there's ebbs and flows. It doesn't always feel close in both directions. But that's what holds every marriage together, every friendship together, every sibling relationship together. There are times when one or the other party isn't feeling it, and the other person who is holds that relationship together. And that's good for the relationship. It ensures a mutuality of commitment. 
When's the last time you told God, you know, I've been analyzing how well you've been loving me for so long, but I want to just tell you, God, I love you. I love you, and not I love you if, or I love you because, but just I love you. I love you. In Ephesians 3, 18 to 19, which Pastor Seth preached from, there's this line that really grabs my heart. It says, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, listen, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. When we say to God, I love you, I believe that what he says back to us is, I love you more. If you've ever been in puppy love as a teenager, you probably had that little conversation on the phone. I love you. I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. It's the whole, like, you hang up first thing, right? It's a way of saying, no, I don't think you understand just how much. I know you're saying I love you. You don't even get it. I love you. Oh, no, you don't get it. I love you. No, you don't get it. That's what real love feels like. It bubbles over. It's so generous. It feels like you can't contain it. And it seems impossible that the object of your love should actually understand what you're feeling for them. You know, when you have little children and you go, I love you, they go, I love you too, mommy. And then they hug you and you're like, they get it. They know. And then they get a little older and you go, I love you. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Uh And it's like, do you know? Just what I feel when I still say it, 17, 18, 20 years later, what I still feel when I look at you and I say to you, I love you. Do you really? And for the parent, sure, when they were one or two and they hugged you back, you knew. But man, on faith, it feels impossible that they would actually be understanding this, right? That's what real love feels like. And what God says, because I think sometimes we project onto God what we're struggling with. We think, oh, I'm going to say I love you. And he's like, yeah, I know. He says to us, you don't have any clue how much I love you. You can try and understand a little, but you will never fully understand. The love God feels for you is beyond your ability to analyze or measure or, or make statements about. You cannot make firm Doctrine, firm declarations that are dogmatic about the love of God for you. You cannot indict God and say, no, your love is at a B minus right now. The love of God is so vast for us that no matter how we struggle to define it, we will never fully comprehend how much he loves us. There are moments when we realize after a bad season, oh my gosh, we all had that. When I became a parent, I looked at my mom and dad very differently. Oh, you did all the, for me? And then I look back at all the stuff at them. like, oh, you really loved me a lot. You waited for me a long time. You were so patient with me. If any of you know my parents, especially, and me when I was younger, man, 
I didn't appreciate till much later what special people my mom and dad were. When we say to God, I love you, he says to us, I love you more. What, what I think is so profound about God is he doesn't just tell us, but he always demonstrates, he shows us. And he doesn't always show us in the little ups and downs of our lives. He showed us in the most profound way. He gave up his own life. He forfeited his own son. This is the ultimate demonstration. And if this doesn't move your heart, nothing else he does for you will touch your heart the way you think it will. If only you would have done this or you will do that, then I would trust you. I would know you love me. Not if you can look at the cross and say, eh, but what else? What else? This is it. The cross of Jesus is the most profound way he could have ever expressed to you in some way we can begin to understand. Do you now understand how much I really love you? I don't think anyone else in our lives has come close to loving us like that. When we say to God, I love you, he says to us, I love you more. And if there is a moment in prayer so sweet, you can actually hear him say those words to your heart. The effect it will have on us is profound. I need to move on. Confession is I'm sorry. I think in every relationship, it really hurts when somebody we call the friend betrays us in some way. It's never a good feeling, especially when we're good friends and we feel like the friendship should have been more than this. It hurts. But you know what hurts even more is when after a person wrongs you or betrays you, they won't own it. They won't acknowledge what they've done to you. They just keep moving on. Many people trust that time heals all wounds. That's one of the worst lies unleashed on humanity. Time doesn't heal jack squat. Can we just establish that forever? Time numbs. Time makes us temporarily forget. But time heals nothing. Only the gospel and the grace of God heals human relationships and human hearts. Nothing else can do it. So when an apology is not made, a great barrier exists between two people who should have a relationship. And that's no different between us and God. See, an apology, a confession, cannot erase what was done or the effects of what was done. The purpose of an apology is not to make everything right. I know we use that phrase, I've used it before, but an apology can't actually do that. You understand that, right? If I do something horrible to you, my saying sorry doesn't undo that horrible thing or the impact it's made on your heart, maybe for the rest of your life. But what an apology does is it begins the process of restoring the break in the relationship that says, I cannot undo what I did. But I can look at you and say, I grieve that I did it. I want us to be able to move forward from this point and still have a hope that one day we will look at each other and feel love again. And an apology, though it doesn't 
fix anything empirically in the real world. It fixes everything in the relational world. It begins the process of reconciliation. I would even go further to say that apart from a true and heartfelt confession, reconciliation is impossible. You cannot move forward just by pretending. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. That doesn't work. Ostriches don't move forward in life. That's very obscure. You know what I mean by stick the head and let's just, you know, this is how dumb this ostrich is. It's this ginormous bird, six feet tall, but when it's scared, it just buries its face. I can't see anything. So clearly I'm invisible. Come on. You've got this six foot tall frame, this giant rump sticking out of the ground. All you're doing is making sure you don't see what's about to eat you. Without truly dealing with the relational break, there is no moving on. There isn't. It's not possible. Now, I understand these things take time. It has to be sincere. We have to be ready. But without it, there is no repair to the relationship. I think that's what John meant to say in this familiar verse. That if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. In other words, the best way to guarantee no reconciliation is to act like we never did anything wrong. Oh, there's no need for forgiveness or apologies. We're just going to keep moving forward. And he says, if you do that, it guarantees you will forfeit the freedom that comes from being released, being forgiven. But if we confess our sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. <clears throat> A confession is more than just an omission of guilt. It's asking someone to release us with undeserved forgiveness. And here's the thing. The good news is that God will always respond. That's what this passage says. He doesn't say, listen, I know you're saying sorry again, but my goodness, oh my me. I mean, I don't think God says, oh my God. He says, oh myself. This is like the 80th time this week you're repenting for that. And I grant you, that's a whole other sermon. There's a problem when you're repenting of the same thing 80 times in a week. Like, you're not really that sorry. But even if you are that sorry and just that broken, God doesn't go, you know what, 81 times is enough. I I think maybe it's better for you if I just put you in the doghouse. You just go sleep outside of my presence for about six years, and then maybe you'll feel bad and come back. See, that's not the heart of God at all. He's waiting on the walls, looking to see if you will return. Even a small gesture, he will rush out towards us. When our kids were little, Jeannie taught them something that I really am so grateful for. She taught them not to say, I'm sorry, but will you please forgive me? And she did that because it's a very different thing. When you say sorry, you're just saying, I feel bad about what I did, but will you please forgive me puts the power back where it belongs to say, I've done wrong to you. I yield the power to you. And it's terrifying to give a true confession because it puts you in such a powerless place. It gives the other person power to release you or to keep you in bondage, doesn't it? 
And with most of our human relationships, that produces a great amount of uncertainty and insecurity because we've had that experience over and over. We apologize the most groveling, heartfelt apology, and the person goes, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know how sorry you really are, but we'll see. See, people don't do that for us. We say, I'm so sorry. I've done some really bad things. Sometimes totally because I'm stupid and sometimes because I'm evil. And when I've done it, I come to my senses. The remorse I feel is it's palpable. I feel so bad. I, I don't know if words are enough. I just want to somehow just touch the face. Oh, I wish you could feel how bad I feel. And I want to say it, but there's always that lingering insecurity. Like, what if they don't really believe me? What if they're so upset, they say, no, save it. And the good news is while people are like that more often than not, Our God is never like that. Our goal should be to become more like our God in the way we relate to other people. Whenever we say, I'm sorry, he always says to us, I forgive you. There's no other thing. He doesn't say, wait. He he just says, "I I see your heart. I know your remorse. I forgive you. That's it. That's why the gospel is good news. You know, in just the same way that when we finally get reconciliation in a broken friendship, it feels so good. You know that feeling when you've been in animosity with someone and then finally there's healing and reconciliation and it's sort of that nervous giddiness like, oh, I have my friend back, but I'm also a little nervous because, man, we had a pretty bad season there. Have you been through anything like that, guys? Anyone? Where it's sort of like, oh, we're seeing each other again at church or at work, and you're like, hi, friend that I almost lost. Hi, friend. It's the same way when I know that I've been really far from God, and then I come back to him. And there's this sort of nervousness, like, is this going to stick? Is he going to, what's going to happen here? And here's the good news. That when we actually repent and turn to God, he wipes out our sin. And what's the result? In our relationship with him, in our experience of him, times of refreshing come. Isn't the promise of a prayer life is that as we pray to God, we're refreshed. And it's hearing the words truly, I forgive you, that has such a powerful effect on us. In fact, I think so many people are in a spiritual funk. What they may not realize is that unconfessed sin is one of the biggest barriers between them and God. I know there are other barriers that are valid, but it's as if because there are these other things, I refuse to apologize to God. I refuse to repent, to own what I've done. And can I just tell you that you and God are not equals negotiating. God is God and we are not. And when we refuse to repent, how can we actually have any meaningful discourse or exchange with God? How can we? It's not possible. And for some of us who are in a spiritually dark place, can I challenge and invite you to consider, is unrepented sin that thing which is keeping that barrier between you and God? Good Lord, let me finish quickly. There's a third thing, Thanksgiving. I won't say a whole lot about this one because it's kind of self-evident. 
But how many of you would agree that ungratefulness is one of the most universally unattractive qualities in another person? Except when it's us, then we're like, well, whatever. But in other people, it's so ugly, isn't it? Like, I did that for you. I wasn't expecting anything in return, but when I got nothing in return, I was like, oh, okay. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I don't think it's always malicious, but man, sometimes it's just such an ugly thing. It's very off-putting. I did that for you, and you acted like I was supposed to do that for you. I think most of us are pretty good at saying thank you right at the moment when something kind is done for us. I mean, you have to be kind of a horrible person when someone opens the door for you and you're like, <laughs> whatever. Like, most of us will go, hey, thank you. Just that, that simple. Because right at that moment, a kindness was done to me. I have at least the basic training to say thank you in acknowledgement of that kindness right there. But there's a blindness to our gratitude because there are some things that God or other people have done so consistently for us, we started thinking, oh, that's not a cause for a gratitude. It's just an entitlement. Life is supposed to be like this. Every day, here, here, let, me, let me confess one of mine, okay? I, you guys know me. I don't belong in a kitchen. If I were a bachelor, I would have starved to death from ineptitude probably 20 years ago. Every day I come home, when I'm hungry, I expect that there's something made. I'm like, oh, where's the food? <laughs> like I'm in Star Trek, and I just go, computer, roast beef. You know who my computer is? Is my wife, Jeannie. <laughs> Every day on top of two jobs, she makes sure, not just makes sure, she is neurotic about it, the family needs to eat. In fact, she worries about our nutrition so much, we're annoyed by her constant, have you eaten, have you eaten? We're like, yes, I don't want to eat right now. I am so used to having food shoved in my face, provided for me, that I'm actually annoyed by its frequency. Am I a horrible person or what? And you're worse, right? No, I'm kidding. I mean, there are these things that, it's just like the, sky, the sun in the sky, of course it's supposed to rise. Why? Why is every good thing just supposed to be there and every bad thing is, why is this happening to me? You see how faithful, how consistent God is to us that there are a thousand graces every day that he gives us. Some of us love to write or doodle or play an instrument and every day your fingers work, your hands work. You thank God. When I was a young man, I played sports with complete recklessness with no thought to my future and I was so celebratory of my youth and vitality. And then I, I just ruined it through stupidity. And now every day, I grieve the loss of my full mobility, flexibility, strength. I yearn for And I think, how stupid was I that in the days I had my health and strength, I said nothing to acknowledge God. And how many other things are there in my life that have happened so consistently, I don't, it doesn't even occur to me to be thankful for it. The discipline of saying thank you to God is an acknowledgement, an invitation to reflect on the many graces that have been so consistent. never even occurred to you that it doesn't have to be this way. So many kids grow up never hearing the words, I love you. 
So if your parents say, I love you, don't be like, whatever, pause and think, they don't have to love me at all. If every morning you wake up and you still have a job, you still have a family, you still have your friends, you turn, I, I'm so old, you turn the key, you, know, you push the button, and your car actually starts. I mean, just whatever it is, for a thousand graces every day that just keep working, pause and say to God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It has a profound effect on the way you think about your life when you engage in the discipline of saying thank you. A lot of you know that my son Elijah worked at Chick-fil-A for the last year. And I remember that before he worked at Chick-fil-A, I didn't really eat there that much, but I noticed something even before he worked there because it kept happening. I would go there and say, hey, thank you, because, you know, you, you, you need a refill. And these kids that work there, they're so attentive. They're, like, walking by. They go, do you need a refill, sir? I'm like, who does that at a fast food place? These kids are amazing. They're so well-trained. So I'm like, oh, yeah, Coke Zero. And they're like, <clears throat> oh, sure. And they go and bring it back. I say, thank you. And what do they say? Yeah, they never say you're welcome. They always go, my pleasure. I'm like, huh? So it kind of arrested me at first because that's not the normal response. I'm expecting the automatic, you're welcome. They go, my pleasure. And the way they said it, it made me pause and go, look up and go, is it really your pleasure? And then I look at their face and go, oh my gosh, yeah, it really is their pleasure. They're sitting there like, all I wanted to do all day was bring you more Coke Zero. (laughs) Do you like it? Is it fizzy? Is it so delicious? It's like that, that attitude of, man, that was my pleasure to go get you that drink, to save you that walk up to the counter. And when they say it like that with that attitude, there's something that just is more than a refill. Do you know what I mean? You didn't just refill my cup, young man. You refilled my heart. (laughs) Too much? Is it too dramatic? But here's the thing. I believe that when we say thank you to God, what he says back to us is, Oh, you have no, it's my pleasure to have done that for you. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad he doesn't go, oh, I'm your dad. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, duh, yeah, I fed you. I'm your father. He doesn't say that. He, or he doesn't say, well, now that I fed you, will you please? He just says, man, that was my pleasure. I just love watching you happy. It makes me happy to watch you be happy. You know how I know he's saying that to us? Jesus told us something about his father, who is also our father. He said, which of you, if your son asks for bread, I mean, what kind of person would do this? Yeah, here, here's a stone. And the kid bites into it and breaks all his teeth. <laughs> right? That's, the, that's a comical picture. Who would do that? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake. How gross. And then he says this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, listen to these, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Why do earthly fathers give gifts to their children? I'm not talking about the manipulative evil ones. I'm talking about most earthly fathers who just like, you know, I get giddy 
when I'm about to, you know what I'm talking about when you like bought the perfect gift for your, your loved ones and you put it on their desk or under a tree and you're like, Ugh! and some of you, you can barely wait till Christmas, right? You're like, don't you want to ask me what's in the box? Do you, if, if you poke at the paper a little bit, I don't care. It's okay if you do. Because we just, we love to give our loved ones something good. Do you know why I give gifts to my kids? Because I like it. Because I like them. That's why spoiling our children is such a real danger, isn't it? How many of you who are parents have been tempted to spoil your kid? You guys are horrible people. (laughs) Come on. Raise your hand proudly. I, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but man, I have to fight the impulse not to... Right, Jeannie? <laughs> She's like, uh-huh. I have to fight the impulse not to spoil my kids. My parents spoil. I crashed a car and they bought me a better one. <laughs> I, I think in part, that may be a really weird young man for a while, but it also helped me understand the gospel. If we can give such things with delight to our children, he says, how much more do you think that same thing runs in the heart of God? We feel it because he feels it. We're just an echo in our best times of the full character of God. That doesn't mean he gives us everything we want or ask for. But what it does mean is what he does give, he gives us with the delight of a father's heart. Let me finish with this. It's important that asking is the last of the four elements. And that doesn't mean asking is inappropriate, we should feel badly about it, but I think it comes last for a reason. See, these other three words we can say have a societally scripted, traditional expected response. When you say, I love you, what does everyone, else, you know, I, I hear this all, all the time on the phone. I love you. I love you too. It's like, bye, bye. It doesn't actually feel like I love you. just sounds like another way of saying goodbye, right? And I'm glad that at least we have that, that habit, but there's this, I love you too, or thank you. You're welcome. I'm sorry. That's okay. It can be so automatic, it can border on meaningless at times, right? Because it's just so expected. It's so automatic. We don't always mean what we're saying back. But that's not the way God talks to us. When we speak truthfully to him, I feel like God grabs our face and goes, look at me. Listen, I love you more. You think you know what love is. I love that you love me. I love you more. Are you hearing me? I know how bad you feel about what you did. You're sorry. Look at me. You're released. I forgive you. You're clean again. When you say thank you, look at me. I'm more happy than you are right now. It's my pleasure to give you good gifts. The reason it's important this comes last is because when we ask God for things, they're always important things. They're always things that matter to us, and because they matter so much to us, it is so tempting to decide what God is like based on how he answers that request. It's so tempting to decide God's character and heart entirely on the basis of how he responds to the last of these four things. 
But it matters that we say the other three things first because whenever we say please, and here's the truth, God does not always give us what we ask for, even when what we ask for is a moral good. I wish I could give you a pat answer to explain why, but I cannot. That is so galling to someone like me who wants to have answers for everything. I cannot explain why God does not give us everything we ask for, especially when what we're asking for is a good thing. Save her life. Save our relationship. Help us. Give us food. Give us rain. And there are these prayers that we just feel like, if there is a God, why don't you give this to us? And I I wish I could explain to you why, but I cannot. There are no easy answers to that reality. But I will not make my mind up about what God is like on the basis of that yes, no, or maybe answer. Because before I ever asked for something, I met God, who is the God who tells me, against all odds, that I, an insignificant, sinful being, am loved more than I can imagine. I will always be loved more by him than I will ever love him. No matter what I've done, no matter what, I can always be forgiven. And every good thing that already has been given, he's given me with the raw delight of a father's heart. It is to this God that I and you always ask for something. And sometimes his answer will be no. And I struggle with that. I know you do too. But that is not the only way we apprehend who God is, or how he feels for us. Let me wrap up with this one last thing. Audrey, I'm going to invite you to start making your way up. I want to revisit confession for just a minute. Because I told you earlier that confession is saying I'm sorry. But that's not really the full truth of it. That's just one face of true confession. The other face of confession is just speaking honestly about our condition. That's a very powerful form of confession. It's not the kind of confession that begins with, I'm sorry, but can I tell you the truth? This is where I'm at. You know, there are times when speaking truthfully about where I am is to say to God, I'm feeling really angry. I'm drowning in a sea of doubts. I'm confused. I have so much pain, I can hardly breathe. Or I feel nothing at all. Just this void, this cold, black, infinite numbness in my heart when I think of you. Sometimes the only confession we can offer is to tell God the truth that where I am is a very broken, faraway place. Unlike most people in our lives, God can handle the truth. In fact, he knows it before you say it. And I think that God welcomes it when we finally are able to say to him, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I wish I could give you a flowery prayer. I wish I could quote a psalm, lift up my hands, 
say to you, I love you, I'm sorry, and thank you. But the honest truth is I can't say any of those things. I can't even say please anymore. Maybe all you can say is, where are you? Some of us, that's exactly where we are in our prayer life, isn't it? But here's the amazing thing. Even that confession can be the first step in a journey back to God. I've asked Audrey to sing a song for us. It's one of my favorite Christian songs. It's a song by Amy Grant called Better Than a Hallelujah. And God delights in a heartfelt hallelujah. But he also delights in the honest pouring out of the mess that we are. And that's where he meets us. And if where you are is that you can't even pray, I'm going to invite you just to listen to the song, read the lyrics, and see the song as an invitation to just say what you can and nothing more. And if you're in a different place and you're ready to pray, I'm going to invite you to to pray one of the three things that came first. If what you need most to say is I love you and what you need most to hear is I love you more, you pray that. If you need to say I'm sorry and you need to hear I forgive you, you pray that. If you just need to say thank you and hear him say I'm happier than you are right now, it's my pleasure. And you pray that. So with that, I'm going to invite us to just listen as Audrey sings. Let's use this time to pray, and then I'll come back and close us. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.